Today's Cloudcast is sponsored by MongoDB. As a software engineer, chances are you've crossed paths with MongoDB at some point, whether you're building an app for millions of users or just figuring out a side hustle or a new project. As the most popular non-relational database, MongoDB is intuitive and incredibly easy for development teams to use. Now, with MongoDB Atlas, you can take advantage of MongoDB's flexible document data model as a fully automated cloud service. MongoDB Atlas handles all the costly database operations and admin tasks that you'd rather not spend time on, like security, high availability, data recovery, monitoring, and elastic scaling. So go try MongoDB Atlas today. You can visit mongodb.com slash cloudcast to learn more. Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Good to be back with everybody. Uh, good to be moving along in the year, getting from spring to summer. And uh, let's jump right into the cloud news of the week. You know, there's been a lot of things that we try and track. A lot of times we'll talk about uh, VC funding. We'll talk about companies funding, some new technology coming out. And a lot of times those are technology company-centric or sort of what we think about as, as compute-centric types of companies or technology-centric companies. But what we've been seeing more and more are these trends where um, companies that, that you know, whether they're in banking or healthcare or automotive or whatever it might be, um, are really becoming technology companies. And we're seeing intersections between them and the cloud computing technology that we've covered on this show for years. So there was a number of articles this week that I thought were sort of interesting and connected a few different dots and sort of a trend to watch, especially if you're interested in edge computing, IoT, autonomous driving, those types of things. There were really three three articles, and they were somewhat related, some this week, some from a couple of weeks ago. The first one was that uh, Ford made an announcement of a $500 million investment in a company called Rivian. Rivian is a, uh, electronic electric vehicle startup, so sort of rivaling Tesla. Uh, they're focused more on SUVs and, and trucks as opposed to the sedans that Tesla's been focused on. Uh, but Ford made a $500 million investment in this company. Um, so really, you know, kind of showcasing where the automotive industry is going in terms of trying to figure out how do they transition from um, either hybrid vehicles or, or you know, gasoline-powered vehicles towards more electric, but also getting into autonomous driving, getting into ride-sharing. So big investment from Ford into this, uh, into this startup. The second one that sort of came out of that research that I saw was that uh, Ford is, or I'm sorry, uh, Amazon, about a month ago or so, uh, it was announced they led a $700 million investment into Rivian. So it didn't necessarily explicitly say how much Amazon, the company, had uh, made as far as this investment. They were one of the lead investors of things going on. So a um, bunch of money going into the electric vehicle space, which will be the autonomous driving space, which has all sorts of ramifications as to, you know, impacting ride sharing, impacting, you know, larger vehicles, say trucks and so forth down the road. So a lot going on in that space and to see these big investments, uh, you know, rivaling what we're seeing uh, investments, VC investments into, you know, technology companies. And then the third one that kind of connected the dots was uh, that Ford is partnering with Amazon to build out cloud services for connected cars. And they're, uh, they were working together with a company called Auto, uh, Autonomic, which is a number of people, uh, former Pivotal, former Green Plum people had started a company called Autonomic, uh, really building out um, kind of a, a cloud specific for the auto industry for 
edge devices and connected things around automotive. So interesting to watch all of these things sort of play out. You know, we've been talking for a number of years about edge, about IoT, about uh, intelligent, you know, artificial intelligence. Um, but a lot of times we were talking about them just from a technology perspective. It is beginning to be very, very interesting to see these become materialized with large investments from uh, the companies that, you know, very likely you'll interact with, uh, both from a consumer perspective, so for vehicles or ride sharing, but also obviously from a technology perspective with companies like Amazon and AWS. So, sort of interesting to watch all of those dots start to get connected. Uh, we're going to try and dig into that more on the show later on this year. We're going to try and get some of those companies on the show and, and really want to talk about the types of things that they're doing. So thought those were all sort of interesting uh, pieces for the cloud news of the week. Uh, a couple of other little things that made some news this week. Um, Apple uh, made some, some people from CNBC uh, dug into Apple's earnings and, and, their, and their spend. Uh, noticed that Apple's spending $30 million a month with Amazon, with AWS. So I think we're going to see more and more of these types of announcements coming out uh, where large companies are talking about their spend in the public cloud. Um, people initially sort of freak out about it because when you talk about things in the millions and they compare that to their own sort of spending, sometimes those things like bigger numbers. Usually when we look at them in the deeper context, um, and we'll dig into this with people like Corey Quinn and others who really look at cloud spend, um, you know, these end up becoming very much in line with what people spend on technology, you know, 1%, 2% of, of revenue types of things like that. So uh, I think we will see more of these headlines in the future. We've seen this from uh, Pinterest and from uh, Lyft and some other companies, Uber, about what their spend is or what their promised spend is with cloud providers. Uh, but again, we always have to sort of put these in context in terms of revenues that they generate and really how much does this vary from where they have spent maybe on IT in the past? The last one I thought was sort of interesting, and uh, I cover some of the Kubernetes space on, on the PodCTL podcast as well. Uh, big announcement from Tinder. Um, so if uh, you're worried about hooking up or your love life and you're using Tinder, just know on the back end, uh, Tinder has been using uh, Kubernetes now for the last couple of years. They've been transitioning to Kubernetes. So, um, you know, Kubernetes, if people wonder, you know, does anybody have a Kubernetes problem? Well, if you're interested in love or hooking up or anything involving Tinder's, uh, you, you do have a Kubernetes problem. You want to make sure that their Kubernetes is working so that when you swipe left or swipe right, um, you're going to get the partner that you're looking for. So with that, we're going to wrap up Cloud News of the Week. I always want to thank our, our sponsors for the show. Uh, and uh, with that, we're going to get to a very interesting interview with uh, Dr. Steve Harrod, who former CTO of VMware and now uh, Managing Director at General Catalyst uh, Venture Capital. Today's sponsor is Datadog. Now, you know we've been talking about Datadog for a while now. It's the monitoring platform for cloud-scale infrastructure and applications. But did you know that Datadog seamlessly integrates with your AWS environments? So you can start monitoring EC2, RDS, ECS, and all your other AWS services in minutes. You can visualize key metrics, set alerts to identify anomalies, and collaborate with your team to troubleshoot and fix issues fast. So if you want to figure out how Datadog can help your AWS environment, Try it yourself for free by starting a free 14-day trial today. If you go to datadog.com slash cloudcast, not only can you start your free 14-day trial, but you get a free Datadog t-shirt. So go out to datadog.com slash cloudcast, sign up for your free 14-day trial, start monitoring your AWS environment, and get your free t-shirt. And now, on to the show. And we're back. And, you know, folks... One of the things that we've been we've been very privileged over the years uh, as we've had a chance to to talk to a lot of uh, startup companies is from time to time we also get to know some of the venture capital folks that uh, that work in this space and, and enable those and then obviously we've had a chance to meet a lot of very good people over the years and so tonight we're very very excited to have an old friend of the show but also somebody who you know continues to sort of amaze us at, at 
the breadth of, of the things that he works on and the kind of the, the level of, of kind of sophistication that he brings to this industry. And we're really one of everybody's favorite people in the industry. So very, very excited to have Dr. Steve Harrod, Managing Director from General Catalyst. Um, good to have you back. It's been a little while since we've spoken. And uh, how have you been? Yeah, thanks, Brian. I, I still have troubles introducing myself as a venture capitalist. I still <laughs> still think I'm sort of technologist doing investing. Um, but things are great. Yeah, no, that's good. I know, obviously, if if folks have followed the show for a long time or if you've been around uh, the IT industry, obviously, a lot of you would have known Steve from his days as, as CTO at, at VMware. Um, you know, I looked, it's been six years since you made that transition from, you know, really helping to shape the virtualization industry, the infrastructure industry on the vendor side to, to moving over. Um, just for folks that are kind of curious about how that transition works, what, what have the last you know four or five years looked like? And, and maybe what are some of the big lessons you've learned as you've transitioned from one side of the industry to another? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm pretty nerdy about analyzing all kinds of stuff. And so when I was thinking about, um, I was at VMware for about 13 years and uh, I actually got a spreadsheet in front of me and I wrote down the things I really love about my job, which included things like you know, working with technologists, trying to figure out the future, um, you know, that sort of thing. And I got to things that I didn't like so much, which was like constant travel and uh, budget meetings and stuff like that. Yep. Uh, so then I was like, hey, I wonder what job lets me do all the things on the left-hand side of the spreadsheet and less of the things on the right-hand side. And, uh, and uh, sort of ended up um, finding that investing would be a great way to do that. But um, yeah, I definitely spent a lot of time talking to people interested in the investing world and wondering what it's like. And I, I just sort of summarize it as, you know, it can be kind of what you make it. And I've really enjoyed the learning side of it and, and working with incredible people. But you do miss being part of a company sometimes too. So there's always trade-offs. Right, right. You know, obviously one of the things that that you had to do when you were at VMware, um, you know, VMware went through a lot of changes. Uh, you were, one of your responsibilities was obviously building a technology portfolio. So you had to look at, you know, what was there today? Where was the future going to be? How did you either build or acquire things that would, that would kind of fill in the portfolio? I have to imagine it's a little bit different when you look at your portfolio companies. You're not necessarily trying to to piece them all together because they're all independent. Like, how do you kind of think about that? Because I would guess to some extent, there's sometimes technology overlap and sometimes, you know, very different areas that you've got to go learn in. Like, how has that mindset sort of changed for you? No, great, great question. And something I've been, uh, you know, really learning as you went forward. Um, there are probably a couple things of relevance that, um, that come up. You know, I think the first of all is, you know, you, you pick a company based usually on what is the space they're working in? Is it a big space? Is it a growing space? Then you pick it on certainly the, the people, like have they, do they have the chops to, and the interest in going long and doing disruptive big things? And then the last one is they have some idea or some product and, and how differentiated is that within the space? And those are kind of the three things you're always evaluating. Uh, the backdrop of all that though is, you know, at the end of the day, you're looking for companies not only that are going to um, understand how to sell products, you know, I work only in enterprise uh, startups, so they're selling to other companies, but they need to know how to sell the product, but they also need to know how to uh, get tight with other companies and play the partnering game. There's just so many things that you, to make a great company that grows fast, you have to get into. And so a lot of it is just constantly looking at um, all of these different pieces of the of the puzzle and seeing if they come together. And then it needs to couple with something that you're genuinely interested in doing. Sure. <laughs> There's a whole lot of, as you've probably heard from everyone, you know, we must probably meet a hundred companies uh, in depth in a year and invest in kind of two. So there's just a large, large vetting process. Wow. 
that's uh yeah that's a that's a huge number I, I i imagine like i think about it that in our perspective we do you know roughly 50 shows a year we'd have to basically pick one that we thought was the best one and then obviously you, you have to pick that like you can't just do it at the end of the year timing is important and uh you know timing of funding timing of them looking at other people so that's a that's an interesting narrowing process i'm sure that's it just a lot of cycles to go through really, really fast. Um, it's really fascinating. It's always the backdrop too, is that it's a very competitive world on both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, in addition to all of that, you're, you're looking for a personal fit and someone you want to work for 10 years with, and, and you want to have the time to get to know each other. And yet there's all these other investors circling around usually too, with where speed becomes important. So it's, it's a really over-constrained problem, but right. uh, it's very interesting. Yeah, exactly. You know, as I as I look at the portfolio of companies you have right now, um, and and like you said, I, I think you said this even when you you first got into uh, into the venture space. You said, you know, I really love the enterprise space. I'm not necessarily, you know, looking to go off and do uh, uh, you know consumer stuff or or things outside of technology. You've always been pretty true to, to believing the enterprise space is is not only interesting but but there's lots of opportunities. When I look at your portfolio companies, there there seems to be sort of two. Uh, threads that run through them. One of them is th- a lot of them are, I would say, sort of front door. You look at them as security companies. They they perceive themselves as security companies. But I have to imagine there's also a thread because of how complicated and fast moving the attacks in security are that there has to be sort of uh, an AI element or a machine learning element behind that. Is that somewhat, I mean, is, is that a fair way to look at kind of where you see things in terms of you know, security and AI and ML have all sort of become intertwined because of the the level of threats and attacks and, and volume of, of what's coming at enterprise companies? That's a good part of it. Um, maybe I'll step back a little bit. You know, I got into this world, um, you know, certainly clouded by uh, clouded by the VMware and, and sort of public cloud world and looking what was going. And, and as I thought about it, whatever, everyone has different thoughts and, and every company may end up with some different mix of what's running in uh, in, in Amazon or Google or Microsoft and what they're running themselves. Um, and, and so what I wanted to do, first of all, was pick categories that I thought were going to work across whatever mix. And so that's how I ended up on cybersecurity. If you couple it with um, clearly a growing problem and one that's getting more attention at the board level, it, it has become one of the few areas of, of uh, infrastructure that is getting an increased budget each year. So that was sort of a, it was a very conscious thought that cybersecurity would be interesting. But then to your point, um, it's also happens to be one of the most fascinating technology areas and one that really, if you're trying to outwit the really sharp people, you need to do really interesting technology challenges. And so the availability of massive resources through the cloud, uh, machine learning and, and forms of AI, all these things have made it um, just a real fascinating area from a technology capability standpoint as well. And so, yes, they they definitely have overlapped and come together. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we, we can maybe talk about AI because it is what every startup says they're doing now. You know, it has to be real and it's it's a means to an end. It has to provide some result that's so much better than if you weren't using it. Yeah. I, I, I'm curious. We, I think we would sort of profess to, to not be by any means experts. We're, we're always trying to figure it out. We're always trying to have it make sense to us. And and to a certain extent, when we talk to different people in the AI space, uh, occasionally they'll say, look, you know, AI is is this thing that the goalposts are always moving because the things that seemed complicated five or six years ago, once they once they kind of get it right and it disappears in terms of, you know, it could be a, 
I don't know, auto auto filling something or, or giving mm-hmm. you a recommendation. How do, how do you think about like what what are some of the lenses that you look at AI from, especially given that you've got to be looking out, you know, multiple years to say, OK, are we making investments in things that that, you know, could be affecting these next sets of problems? How, how do you kind of frame it in your mind? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, my, my background actually is kind of interesting here. My dad actually did artificial intelligence for Texas Instruments of all places when okay. I was growing up. And at the time, the hottest AI on earth was something called expert systems. You know, expert systems is really interviewing someone and um, and capturing a set of rules that they have in their head and turning it into software that can kind of follow those rules. I think today we would call that you know just another algorithm, or maybe we'd call it um, I don't know, maybe we'd call it RPA or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. But the point, I think you, you really nailed it. A lot of times, artificial intelligence as a category has been, um, you know, sort of the, the boundary of things that are pushing computers to do more human-like things. I think today, when people are talking about AI, 99% of them are talking about machine learning, uh, which is a, you know, a form of AI, a subset of AI. And even some big portion of that are thinking about deep learning, a subset of that. So today, I, you know, there are definitely several forms. We look for them. The way I really go about it, I have I actually have these kind of five questions I ask any startup on. It's kind of to find out if they're really doing a form of AI or if they're just using it for marketing. Yeah, it's a way to dive in pretty deep and understand it. For for me, what really matters is is this a solution that benefits from having more data, and do we have a unique access to that data? And then yeah, at the end of the day, can the recommendations or whatever you're using uh, the AI for can it actually do something substantially better than a more traditional algorithm? And, and a lot of the times, the answer to the first is no, this is just you know statistics. Mm-hmm. Or the second one is no, it's just a kind of a cool way of kind of getting to the same result. So I try to really, really understand the core algorithmic aspects of what they're doing and, and make sure it makes sense. Yeah. I have to imagine, you know, given the amount of, of, of processing that that would have to go on, like you said, as you said, in sort of real AI, real, uh, real processing. Does that then shape uh, your your thought process on, you know, I, I would imagine sort of the business model behind this? Because, you know, if you go back to the VMware days, obviously lots of R&D, lots of developers, but ultimately the software was sold to be, you know, essentially on-premises and it didn't, mm-hmm. didn't need something behind it. It did its job by itself. Now, in order to get that you know, new value that comes out of AI, there's a bunch of constant processing that goes on. Does that sort of make you have to learn that these people have to deliver things as a SaaS model or, or like how, how does that reshape also then the business model that goes along with it? Because the, the data always has to be, uh, you know, part of the equation, I would suspect. Yeah, great points. And A, thank you for saying on-premises. You're one of the few people that gets that right. <laughs> um, it's absolutely the case. And, you know, again, they're all different sorts of things. But I think that the availability of the cloud has enabled people to do the heavy processing involved with a lot of the um, model training and, and model execution. But so you're right. It's At the core, a lot of what you're thinking about is the data and the data used to train these models where is it coming from? Are there privacy concerns? Um, how much processing will it take? All those do factor into the cost of developing your solution. And then ultimately, whether it's you know whether it's a core infrastructure or something else, people are consuming almost everything by uh, by subscription services instead of perpetual license. A lot of us were used to, and so as a result, the processing of this data and how you deal with it goes directly to the operational costs, which right. ultimately you know, goes to your profitability. So it's it's fascinating. I think that I would say the, the, the 
most surprising aspect of this for a lot of companies is the sensitivity of the data itself and the data custody requirements, the, uh, the ability in many cases for them not to want to use a cloud because they won't allow that core data to leave their own premises. So it ends up being far more complex than a lot of people think when compared to just traditional software. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm curious how much, uh, you know, even we even think about how much things have changed since we started the podcast. Uh, Things have changed quite a bit since you've been in the venture space. Um, How much does, you know, to a certain extent, open source, uh, kind of the, the, the readily availability of open source and some of these things from the cloud providers becoming open source projects impact the way you think about it. That's obviously got a, an impact on, on cost, uh, you know, whether it's cost of development or so forth. And then, you know, the public cloud, like how, how much has that changed your, your way of, of thinking about the calculus of, you know, not only building what you can build, but, but delivering what you can, I mean, is I have to imagine it's, it's radically changed what it is. I, I say that from my perspective, but maybe it hasn't necessarily. Well, yeah, I think there, there are two aspects of it. One is um, using open source uh, as a company to advance your product and to get it forward. And, the, and then the second is business models in the world of open source, right, which you're, sure. you're in the middle of the best one there is. Um, I'll, I'll talk to the first one. And this has been interesting. Even from the time before I got into this world, there have always been these discussions on um, how both the public cloud uh, as well as open source, and, and even it may not be open source, but these higher level developer tools that allow you to go really quickly. There's certainly a belief that you could, as a result, um, start a company a lot faster and a lot cheaper. You've got access to all this stuff that previously you might have had to either license or build yourself. Um, but then you, you interpose that with anyone who looks at the funding rounds, like they've continued to rise, uh, you know, an early stage investment it keeps going higher. So it's kind of a little funny how that plays out, but I think there's no question open source has allowed um, all of these developers not only to use the open source to make their own products go faster or go better, but it, the, the secret I've also found is it's just a great way to get trained people. If you know you need someone who works in you know, some sort of database technology or some sort of user interface technology, uh, we've been able to go and look at open source packages and, and be able to get pre-trained people very quickly. Um, and so... I have seen it just touching on all the different aspects um, of the system. At the same time, you know, again, we could talk about the open source business model, which you know, you're an expert on. But I think <laughs> at the end of the day, it's really like what lets you build a product um, fastest and best. And then kind of everything else has to play out, even if it wasn't open source. Yeah. Do you uh, do you have a, a sort of a thesis or a model in your head as to maybe what what the enterprise looks like? three years from now or, or five years from now in terms of how much continues to remain on-premises versus, you know, will be in the cloud, uh, whether it's, you know, using sort of raw AWS Azure type of resources or is, you know, delivered as a SaaS. I mean, do you, have you thought about what that shift looks like or how, how fast do you think it will accelerate maybe away from on-premises? Yeah, well, the good news is, or the bad news, like we had to predict this uh, six, seven, eight, nine years ago. Um, and I think, I think everyone thinking about it at the time, you know, this is where the like hybrid cloud terminology started. And sure. you have a pretty simple model that I think most people, there's nothing too profound in it. I think the the older a company is and the more regulated it is, the, the larger the skewed on-premises um, and the, the newer and the less regulated, you know, it could be 100% in the public cloud. And then I think you see all these very compute, computationally heavy companies that have started in the public cloud and found if they built something more custom to their single app, 
uh, Facebook's an extreme example, but like things like that, that they're going to, they're going to sort of shift back, uh, from one to the other. So I think that, I think that, Top level answer is for, for mid to big size companies, it's you know everywhere from 20% on-premises to 80% on-premises, um, depending on, again, I think age and regulation power, as well as um, their ability to run something at scale that can actually be better on the cost front. Yeah, yeah. That make, makes sense. Makes sense. I, I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, you obviously have a ton of background in you know, your own personal engineering, but building uh, very strong, very well-known engineering teams. Um, you know, you, you talked about early on, you, you have to spend a lot of your time, you know, seeing new companies, c- companies that come in front of you, but how much, how much do you still get to spend with your, uh, with your portfolio companies, maybe giving them, you know, mentoring, mentoring them, giving them advice on, on how to build great engineering teams, how to recruit great engineers. I mean, the, the thing that, that you've got, you know, really a, a ton of, of experience and, and uh, you know, expertise around. And certainly um, the, the good or the bad news is, you know, I probably self-select for companies that are really um, obsessed with building out great engineering teams and, and uh, probably that would, would like at least some cooperation and help on that. So I, I end up spending a lot of time on it. Um, I think any venture person, what, what a lot of people don't get is so much of our time is on recruiting and hiring people for those companies. And so that is a major part of the role. Um, you know, for, for me, that again, I probably take things a little bit differently. All of these, all of these types of companies that I go into, I, I do probably heavier than a, a fair amount of venture capitalists look very much into the technology and the product. And I, I, I certainly have a skew towards um, those solutions that have high IP that is defensible that you can charge for. Then um, it takes real brain power to build. And so uh, towards that end, I'm kind of constantly asking, like, how can we be 10 times better than anyone else in this space? And, and so much of that comes down to the engineering talent. So I guess the answer is um, I probably I probably over-index that versus a lot of folks, but it is where I spend a ton of my time. And candidly, um, yeah, I was, I was mentioning at the start, the thing you do miss sometimes in investing is being part of a team and like really the, the pride of building things and shipping them. And so I get to, uh, I get to live a little vicariously by spending a lot of times with the engineering teams. Yeah, no, that's, that's excellent. I, yeah, it's, you never want to lose certain skills and there's just certain things that you, you just love to be a part of and it kind of just draws it to you. Uh, I want to ask you sort of one last question and, uh, I don't want you to, to necessarily give away any of, uh, you know, strategy or things that you're working on, but I, I know you are, just a naturally curious person. Uh, I know every time we run into each other, you go, Hey, you know, what are, what are some of the things that, that are on your, on your mind or you're thinking about, you know, outside of kind of the specific domain that you look at, uh, from an investment perspective, are there, are there other technologies right now that you're, you know, maybe you're kind of in the infant you know, early stages that you're just curious about that you're kind of trying to read up on the side, anything that has piqued your, uh, your interest or curiosity lately? Yeah, well, even even within the enterprise and infrastructure world, you know, I think some of the emerging areas are uh, are super fascinating. I've been trying to learn a lot about the quantum computing space. I personally still think we're quite a ways out, but I uh, I'm really enjoying thinking through what the future algorithms that map to these chips would look like. And I'm spending a fair amount of time on. Uh, I used to be in a semiconductor startup before VMware, and I. I think it's really cool that building hardware is kind of cool again in the uh, startup world. Lots of chips being built for different aspects of, uh, of ML, for instance. Um, yeah. So I'm enjoying that. But outside of the core infrastructure, um, I'm, I'm getting increasingly obsessed with digital health and um, you know just the, the big breakthroughs that are going on in synthetic biology all the way through 
obviously all the personalized medicine and, and genetics. Um, I think there's a real role for AI to be playing in there. We've, as a firm, invested in a bunch of stuff around that. That uh, yeah, I, I like. I love what you can do with enterprise infrastructure, but being able to affect people's health is is even the next level of um, like really interesting. So I, I spend a lot of time learning about that. Yeah, very very cool. Uh, well, I'll ask you one last little thing. Um, you know, we we have people that listen to the show that that probably have some big ideas, may want to start a company. Um, obviously you're getting bombarded all the time with, with new ideas, but any little tips and tricks that you give to, you know, companies that get in front of you that you, not, not to set their idea, but to go, this is the way to present to us. This is the, you know, the top three or four things that we just, we really want to know, you know, like beyond the stuff you said, great, you know, great founder, super passionate, but any little tips and tricks you might give to somebody that gets a chance to get in front of you or, or uh, one of your colleagues or something. Yeah. We, we all probably think about different things. Minor, minor, Pretty simple. One is, um, why are you uniquely both interested and qualified to go after this problem? Um, if you were a CIO addressing this problem in an interesting way, or if you were a developer and the tool sucked, like I, I really look for some natural reason why you have unique insight to a space. Um, also, building a startup is just hard. So if you don't really love this area, it, you know it's <laughs> it's hard to wither through everything you're going to have to do. So one one is always like. And I think you should think about this before you start a company anyway. Is this really what I am uniquely set up to do for the next 10 years and do I want to? And then the other one, like this is a real simple question, but I ask at every single meeting, which is why are you 10 times better than what exists today? Yeah. And you need to be 10 times cheaper, faster, more accurate, something. Um, Two times just isn't interesting. Right. Right. Steve, it is always good to catch up with you. We, we thank you so much for the time. I know you've got a very, very busy schedule, but uh, as always, thanks for being a friend of the show. Thanks for making some time with us. And uh, folks, with that, I'm going to wrap it up. I want to thank Steve and, and for Aaron. Um, folks, always thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for telling a friend. Thanks for rating it on iTunes and all the different places that you listen to your podcast. And with that, we're going to wrap it up and we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 